Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today's sermon, Truth, presented by Mr. Kevin McGonigal. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please give us open hearts and minds to hear your word today. Let us search our innermost selves through the power of your Holy Spirit and examine to ensure we know and understand the depth, value, importance, and application of truth in our lives. Father, we humbly beseech you to help us use what your word has graciously revealed to ensure that we are in proper relationship with Christ and that we know how we ought to live out our redeemed lives. Transformed by Christ's power and not conformed to this dark and dying world. Lord, we pray for those in our congregation not with us today. We ask that each need will be met and we pray for healing for those that need it. Father, we lift up to you the conflict in Israel and ask for your divine guidance for the people of that region. Lord, we ask that our nation turn back to you, that our national, state, and local leaders would submit to your headship and authority. Father, we ask that you bless our time together, that it may further your kingdom, and I ask that you give me direction as this lesson is shared. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. I have titled the sermon today, Truth, why we need it, and why we can be confident in it. My aim is for us to evaluate the truth we have been so generously and graciously given and determine how it is that God would have us use it and share it. To accomplish this, there are four things that I am going to cover today. And so if you want to write these down, if you take notes, this would be the thing to write down. We're going to begin, of course, with the definition of truth. I guess that's the, the, the teacher in me that I, I want to always start with definitions, the definition of truth. And we're going to transition into the fact that truth can be known. We will then discuss the contrast of that, some of the contrast of that, that truth is not relative. And then finally, the believer's evidence and the believer's ready response. So now that we have our map, though those four things... Let's begin with the definition of truth. The Webster's Dictionary actually defines truth this way. The body of real things, events, and facts. It has a highlighted word. It's called actuality. This is you are living in reality and is actuality. It's a state of being, the case, or a fact. It's transcendent. It's fundamental or spiritual, but yet it is still reality. It also continues, it can be a judgment, a proposition, an idea that is true or accepted as true, as in the truths of thermodynamics, gravity, and time. The body of a true statement or proposition, as in evidence that would be presented in court, the body of truth. The property, as of a statement of being in accord with fact or reality, it's fidelity to an original idea, but it's fidelity also to an original standard. Now that is the Webster's Dictionary. The Holman Bible's Dictionary has an entire page dedicated to help the believer understand truth. I just took a few excerpts from the Holman, and I'm going to share those with you here. Truth, as used in the Bible has a variety of nuance and meaning. It can be propositional. It can be personal. It can be moral. And 
historical. And we see this throughout God's word. There's a propositional or positional truth. There is a personal truth for each believer. There is a standard, a moral standard that God has given us. And of course, God's word has time and again been proven true through the historical record. But really all of these nuances, they tend to point to one characteristic, and that is faithfulness as the root and understanding of truth. The Old Testament writers used faithfulness to describe God's words and deeds. I find that interesting that it was the writers used that word faithfulness to describe God's words and deeds. He was faithful first. And yet now today we use faithfulness to describe us, how we live out our sanctified lives. But we need to remember it first came to us through the writers that faithfulness was from God. His word can be trusted because he is faithful and because it is true. The beauty of all of this information is that, as the Holman states, is the genius of biblical teaching is that all truth is unified and grounded in the faithful and true God. I'm going to read that again. The genius of all biblical teaching is that all truth is unified and grounded in the faithful and true God. That's a marvelous statement. And one simple enough, I think sometimes we overlook that concept. That truth is because God is. Truth is because God is. He is sovereign over everything. His characteristics are throughout all of his creation. Even as believers, I think sometimes we forget that aspect of God. We have this idea and understanding of truth because God, in his mercy, love, and grace, has provided it to us. So we actually have an understanding of truth because God gave that to us. He revealed that to us. He revealed it to us in his word. And he reveals it to us in his personal relationship with us. Now that we have this definition of truth. I hope that we're able to draw from it that truth is actually something that can be known. But today's world presents the church, that's the body of Christ. Okay, that's all of the body of Christ with many challenges. When it comes to the believer's pursuit of spiritual growth or sanctification. And these problems, these challenges, they are in many unique ways today because of technology. And that's why we have distractions that abound. Everybody's looking for something to keep their attention, to hold their attention, to do something else, to keep us busy. Second, culture invades everything. Culture invades everything today. And it's not necessarily the culture that we want to invade everything today, but it does. There's hardly a person probably in this room right now that has not been impacted by culture and its invasion into our homes, into our community, our congregation. Those things just do happen. And the final challenge for the church is that oftentimes within the church, critical thinking collapses. We have nominal Christians a lot of times in the body of Christ. Because they have failed to think 
through what they're actually reading or think through what they're actually listening to on the radio or think through what people are actually saying because we are conditioned to give a response so rapidly now. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If someone sends a text and you do not respond to that text immediately, oftentimes they send another text right after that. Are you there? And if you don't respond to that one, they send another one. Are you there? Because we're so used to instantly having a response. It conditions us to respond sometimes before we think through really what it is. And I'm very, very guilty of that. Oftentimes, it is a character flaw that I will speak before I think. And you know, it's really interesting that in our lives, all those times, all those years that we had the boys at home, that was one of the things that Becky talked to them about all the time. Think before you speak. Think before you speak. So I hope that they learned from me that it's a good idea to really critically evaluate things before you speak to those things. So that's a challenge that is raised by the world, by the secular world for the church today, is these distractions that abound, how culture invades, and how critical thinking begins to collapse. But something that I think we all recognize or should recognize is that the Christian worldview in all of that, in all of those things, it really is under attack. See, the Christian worldview is based on God's word. I pulled three things out of there. Religion, organized religion, the Bible, and truth. Those three things are absolutely attacked by culture today. There are people all over this globe that will make the statement, it's organized religion's fault that all these wars occur. It's the religious fanatics. It's never based in God's word, which is the fall of man, right? The Bible is under attack. The world says, how can a loving God be so evil? When they look at the Bible, they don't look at the revelation that it has provided to mankind. They just see evil. And the sad part of that is that there's a progressive movement within the church that tends to agree with that statement. They're agreeing with the secular world instead of with God. Many within the church even doubt God's word when it comes to creation. They do all kinds of twists and turns and bend God's word in all kinds of ways in order to meet their manifestation in their own mind about creation. And then, of course, truth ultimately is attacked because we have a world that does not want to look at this and be faced with the fact that there is an evaluation that comes. Whether we like it or not, there is an evaluation that is made. And they try to put their heads in the sand and ignore it. And if they ignore it long enough, maybe it'll go away. And that's why truth is attacked. Now, you may be asking yourself, where are you going with this point? I thought you were going to address truth and how it can be known. Well, I am. But to help us better understand, I really want us to evaluate some contrast that exists. See, the believer sees the Bible, religion, and truth much differently than the world. I know that you know that point. I know that we all agree on that. But we need to remember, for all intents and purposes, the world truly is deaf and blind. It, that's a hard concept sometimes for us to remember. 
when we know that people can see us and that when we have a conversation with them, they hear us, but they don't necessarily see who Christ actually is. And they definitely don't necessarily listen to what we're saying. Sometimes it's the messenger. I can honestly say that I have presented God's word in a not very godly manner or in a not very Christ-like manner. I've used God's word as a bludgeon for people who skirt the morality of God, the truth of God. And I don't think that that's necessarily the right thing to do. I was younger at that time. I'm thankful that God gave me an opportunity to correct some of those things. Some of those people that I bludgeoned with God's word. I was stationed at my first duty station in the Air Force in 1988 in Greece. I didn't see those people again until the late 90s. And I happened to be able to see those same people. And God gave me an opportunity to apologize to those people for the way I treated them and his word. I think that goes a long way for anyone, for any believer to evaluate and say, maybe I need to evaluate me first. I think it's a direct application of before you worry about the splinter in your brother's eye, why don't you take care of the beam in your own? And oftentimes we forget just how blind and deaf a lost world is. Additionally, the Christian has been delivered and therefore has an insight that is to be shared. Most of the time when we share something, we're excited about it. Most of the time when we share something, we have a joy about it. Most of the time when we are going to share something, it's a desire for others to take part in it. Whether it's a piece of cake or God's word, we tend to be excited about it. Although I don't know, I might want to keep cake for myself. I think this is what Peter meant for us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And the Bible says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, I bet you all know the part of that segment of Scripture that I'm going to focus on, and you're right. It's verse 17. Be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. But I want us to focus on the next line. I don't want us just to have a reason. Do you know that God, in His infinite wisdom instructed Peter to write this. And he says, do it with gentleness and respect. I walk around a lot of times with the reason for the hope that's in me. I don't know that I'm always walking around with gentleness and respect on my tongue when I give that reason. We need to make sure we understand the full complexity of that verse. Yes, we give reason but we need to do it in such a way. I, I think uh, Becky and I saw Vody Bacham. He said, present the gospel in a winsome way. That's a word I don't think we use very much anymore, winsome. 
But really, it is a way in which we communicate the love of Christ so that people actually see the love of Christ and not someone on the other side from them who is just berating them. So how do we do this? How do we present it with gentleness and and respect? Well, first, we must establish, we, the believer, must first establish we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we can phrase it just like that, so that the person who does not know Christ as Savior understands, I'm not just saved once. Jesus saves me every day. He intercedes for me every single day. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Now, I'm not talking about challenging once saved, always saved. I, of course, believe that. I'm talking about the fact that Jesus is growing us each and every day. And when I stop believing that I need Christ and the cross, I'm in real trouble. That's why we want to present the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Second, I think we give an account of how we know that we're sinners. Perhaps we go to the law. Romans 2.15 says, They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, that verse, while written to believers, that's a picture of the lost person. They have a law written on their heart. They know right and wrong. They might not know why they know right and wrong, but they do know right and wrong. And we need to address that to them. We may talk with someone about the Ten Commandments. Most people lost and saved agree that the Ten Commandments are for the moral and common good of community. The Bible tells us in Galatians 3, 23 through 24, that before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So what we have here, church, is we have the Ten Commandments. We have the law that is written on every person's heart, and it is a tutor that brings us. It teaches us why we need Christ. Because if we stand before a holy and righteous God, We're not going to measure up. Third, we may give hope by expressing that God's word says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. God is wisdom and knowledge, as in Romans 16-27. He is the only wise God. R.C. Sproul goes on and explains a portion of that verse, and and I'm paraphrasing this. He says, all knowledge... All understanding of the essence and interrelation of all God's creatures and all their actions resides in him, resides in God. More than that, it means that God is the wisdom he possesses. See, I think sometimes we forget that the attributes that God has or that God has revealed to us, he's not just a piece of those things. He's all of those things. We get to experience some of those things, but he is all of it. There's no way we could quantify it. 
right? He's so infinitely wisdom. He's so infinitely holy. He's so infinitely righteous. And, and he is so much justice and so much grace. It's hard to quantify it. We would call ourselves 100%. But how do you do that with an infinite God? The only way we can do that is we look at the Lord and we understand that he is the things, wisdom in particular, that he possesses. This means that fear and respect of the Lord is wisdom and knowledge. The respect of the Lord is wisdom, is knowledge. And because of that, we know the way of truth. Every believer knows the way of truth. And this is the fourth point under this particular segment. John 14, verses 6 and 7 tells us that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus himself is the way, he is all truth, and he is all life. We don't know the way, and we don't know truth, and we have no life without Jesus. And he follows that up. And he says, because no one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. If you know me, you know the way, you know truth, and you know life. Because you know me, you know the father. It is a perfect reflection of God incarnate. And that is what Jesus is saying. So the whole theme of Christ's deity that is established from the beginning, Christ confirms in John 14. But not only in John 14. Turn in your Bibles real quick to John chapter 1. The very first five verses of John. Christ is claiming his deity. He is claiming his equality with God. He is claiming that I am truth. And in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, Jesus is the light of the world. The darkness has not overcome it. But Christ gave us his Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be reflecting something. We're supposed to be reflecting that light to a lost and dying world. And I am so thankful that God has revealed that light to us. And listen, this is what we're battling, right? The Christ, the light of the world... He's sharing a warning that the secular world loves darkness. In John 3.19 it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The natural man wants to be in the dark. The regenerate man wants to live in the light. The light of truth. And the following hope of salvation is offered in John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
That's the way, the truth, and the life. Now we come back to truth and that it can be known and that truth is Jesus. That's the central theme that we have to remember here. He has commanded all men to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Confess your sin and be saved. Saved from separation from God, yes, but more importantly, saved from the wrath of God. That's the good news of the gospel. It is the absolute truth and one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, either willingly and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ or unwillingly and under the judgment of the most high, most holy and righteous God. Now, church, I think it is necessary that we keep in mind that our Christian worldview is not accepted or appreciated by a lost and dying world. As I stated before, secular culture and society scoffs at the idea of God, creation. They doubt the veracity of the Bible. They doubt the need for a Savior. And it all begins with the denial of truth. See, God is wisdom. God is knowledge. God is truth. And therefore, Jesus is wisdom, knowledge, and truth. The secular worldview says that truth is relative. Most people in the world today, even many supposed Christians, say things like, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. That type of relative truth has a host of problems. Most of the secular world is not intellectually honest enough because they want things to go their own way. They'll claim that there is no absolute truth. And, you know, we need to start asking the question, is that an absolute truth? They may also say things like, All truth is relative. And we need to ask that question. Is that a relative truth? And actually, no. If they make that statement, that's an absolute. Being blind and deaf to the word of God does not give them an excuse. And asking Christians that are truly following Christ to be more understanding, tolerant, accepting, and appreciative of them and the world, their sin and depravity, is asking us not to actually love them. That is not a reflection of love. We are called to love them and to share truth with them. What the world wants is for us, the church, to wink at sin, not to call it sin, to just let them be. However, in Judges 17, 6, it says in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what relativism wants. See, they don't want a moral law. They want no values. They want no law. They want no one to answer to. That's a me-centric philosophy. That's a me-centric vision. The crazy thing about all that is that the secular worldview craves and even demands all the fundamentals, all the pieces and benefits that Christianity has provided, especially in Western society. I bet if you surveyed everyone, they would understand. Anybody you ask, they all want good jobs. They want good jobs that have safety standards in place. They want to be treated fairly. They want a day's work for a day's wage. Those are all biblical concepts. Most people want safe towns and cities and the ability to own a home. That's a biblical concept. People want law enforcement and courts to help the communities. That's a biblical concept. Most lost people do not see that without truth, there is no objective standard. Morals become meaningless without objective truth. Right? You could lie, cheat, and steal all you want. There's no consequence. Values have no meaning. Love, justice, freedom, fairness, equality. Those don't mean anything without the word of God, without truth. They don't mean anything. Without truth of the gospel, the benefits that most of the lost enjoy would not exist. 
If it was not for Jesus Christ, these things that everyone appreciates and has today, they wouldn't exist. Now, we've looked at truth can be known. We've looked at relative truth of the secular world. We've contrasted those. And we know that it's a delusion. It is a delusion. It's been highlighted. But let's turn our minds to the believer's evidence and a ready response. This is my last point. First thing, believer's evidence, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Second, there's evidence in creation, science, philosophy, and personal testimony. But in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. A lost person doesn't get it. The lost person won't understand. This is why we all need to be able to verbalize. We need to be able to speak the gospel of Christ. The world will always want evidence. They'll always say, prove it. But an unregenerate sinner is only going to accept evidence they want and they love. Third, and my final point under this is for our evidence and ready response is the gospel. We're sinners in need of a savior. God is the creator and sovereign of the universe. He created man and man broke his law. God is holy and righteous and cannot allow sin in his presence. Or he cannot allow it to go unpunished. God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for my sin, for your sin, and is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb. Jesus bore all our iniquity, past, present, and future on the cross at Calvary. Jesus' perfect blood can now cover our sins. And in the sight of God, we can be clean and reconciled to him. This is justification and salvation. As God, the Holy Spirit, calls you to himself, we must answer with confession of our sins and repentance. God can and does save those he calls. Do you hear him calling you today? Is this the moment God has ordained in your life for you to respond? Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not based on our goodness. It's not based on good works. It's not based on anything you have to offer. It's all the work of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? If you do believe that, tell him. And if you really do believe that, tell somebody else. Let us take time on this Lord's Day to remember who we once were, who it was that delivered us from iniquity, and what it is that Christ would have us do to further his kingdom. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to share this truth, the truth, with our congregation today. Thank you, Father, for loving me. Loving me enough to not let me get away with anything. Father, I ask, Lord, that you call us all to submit humbly to you. That we would serve you honestly, zealously, because of the great love with which you loved us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Bless us as we leave today. Keep us safe. Help us to be a true servant of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for joining us. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.